Well, the heading that we have uh, is Let's Get Ready for Worship. And uh, this is part of a series that we are looking at each Sunday evening. The Psalms in many ways are linked and yet they stand uh, on their own as well. And this is one of six uh, liturgical uh, Psalms with the theme throughout of joyful adoration. They are composed at different times. And uh, Psalm 98, Psalm 95 rather to 98, uh, centers on the fact that the Lord is the sovereign Lord. He reigns. He is good. And he blesses his people. This psalm would be used by a priest in the Old Testament who would call people to worship. But as you will see in a moment, it's extended to what becomes through the death of the Lord Jesus, the priesthood of all believers through him. We are priests. We come to him as we are. Without a mediator, we come to the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, that's its roots. Now, it is not a command like, um, go to church because it's Sunday. It's not that. And it isn't even like um, the local bell ringers. You'll hear them at certain times. They practice on Thursdays and they ring the bells often on Sundays. I'll never forget about 32 years ago. It was a first for me when we used to have joint carol services once at St. Mary's and, and here at Christmas time. Some of you will be old enough to remember that. And um, I was quite astonished that when we went to the carol service, that the people who were ringing the bells, the bell ringers, as we were coming to church, they were leaving. And I asked one of them, whom I knew quite well, where on earth are you going? He said, I'm going home. But I said, it's the carol service. He said, I've done my bit. I've called you to worship. I didn't think that was very helpful at all. Now, some of you are more Anglican persuasion know that bell ringers do that sort of thing and don't always engage in worship. Well, it's a good thing to call people to worship. But it's much better that that invitation comes in this form. Let us do this together. The invitation to come, if you were to factor in already in our worship, how many times that word deliberately, purposefully, come, has been sung and expressed and read, then you will see that that, that's an integral part of this psalm, Psalm 95. Now, look very quickly, this twofold invitation. The first is inspiring praise. I again make mention to, to the group, a different tempo in their preparation in going through each song and, and not just think, wanting to be professional, though that's important, but a sense of excellence of giving the best, giving it back to God in leading worship. Inspiring praise. So you see in verse 1, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Joy and shouting are not always the experiences of church, are they? 
inspiring praise. And then look in verses 3 to 5. For the Lord is great. He is a great God. The great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his. He made it. His hands form the dry land. That's what he's like. And the creator and the creation are in sync. Stirring, if you like, our emotions. Then the second part of this twofold invitation is this. Not only inspiring praise, but infectious praise. Look again at the psalm. Let the psalm speak for itself. You see in verse 2, 6 to 7. Now, this is different. That's the stirring of our emotions. How do you do this? Have you ever done this consciously? To stir up other people's emotions. Well, if you've led worship, you've been at the front, you'll know that often people come to church perhaps with legitimate burdens and concerns and it seems as if the worship doesn't connect at all. So you see, stirring up of other people's emotions. Look at verse 2. Look, let us, do you see that? Now we are saying this to each other. Calling, drawing, engaging. See, let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. And then look again at verse 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. And so on. You see what, what's going on here? So it's inspiring. It's infectious praise. Stirring other people's emotions. Prompting, stirring, provoking Uh, this psalm is often referred to as the veniti, uh, the Latin word, O come. In other words, we are saying to each other, come, let's get ready for worship. Now, of course, we've been worshipping. Actually, listening to God's word as we are now, perhaps, certainly the reformers believed this was the pinnacle to worship. God is speaking. And we are listening. And can there be anything greater than that? Come. Let us worship. Just stop for a moment. If you were, I know we're British and I'm as reserved as many of you, but just to look around. Just have a little look around. And look at each other, because that's, what, that's the context here. Looking at people and saying, let's do this. Let's worship. Yeah, have a good look. Uh, and then, why don't we kneel? Well, I know if you knelt there, you wouldn't be waking up, because there's no room, but it would be quite nice, wouldn't it? Kneeling, worshipping. Let's do it. Look around. It's as we respond to this invitation, we look around and we encourage one another to engage perhaps more deeply, more meaningfully. We're all creatures of habit. So what can we say? Well, a couple of things. First of all, we can sing joyfully, and we do that, and that's good. Shout loudly, not so much, 
But there you are, that's, that's what it is, this sort of exuberant. If you read accounts of all revivals of the past, they were often accompanied by shouting and exuberant expressions of emotion. Sometimes too much. But there was such a tangible awareness that God is among his people. Come, let us worship. Let us extol him and praise him musically. What a blessing. Think what it would be like to live in a silent world of no music. There will be music in heaven. And musicians. <coughs> the ones perhaps are not bring back the church organ. Others say, well, you know what I mean. It's the Three questions. Number one, just think personally for a moment. Forget about everybody else for now. That's not wrong to do. What helps you? What helps you to enter into God's presence with praise? What is it? I know for some people they want to come and just sit quietly and sometimes get rather irritated inwardly when everybody's talking and the group are warming up and they say, is there no peace in church? What helps you? Second question. How can we, thinking about our worship, have a balance between these two, if you like, extremes, two polarized positions of thinking, between the transcendence of God, what you call the otherness of God, his awe, his majesty, his power, his sovereignty on the one hand, and his imminence on the other, his closeness. Sometimes some people perhaps are too pally with God. Others are too distant. Think for a moment, how do you have a balance between the transcendence and imminence in our worship? If you are willing to balance this tension, it will prevent us from being overly casual and it will also prevent us from being distant. The danger of the one is to be irreverent, too casual. The danger of the other to be irrelevant. How do we get a balance here that God is above all, the otherness of God, with Emmanuel, God with us, God in our skin, God who has become man, God with us. And of course, we need both. And you can go to some churches where there's just the one and you go to churches and then you have, have the other. And there is a genuine healthy tension here. How do you get the balance? And then the third question. How can the church, and this is, a, this is perhaps a continuation of worship for sure. How can the church cause the world to sit up and listen? Look at verse 8. 
as we, we, we pose this question. Today, if you hear his voice, and God is not silent, he's a speaking, communicating God. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Hear what God is saying. So, what is the bottom line here? Praise proceeds from the fact that in verses 1 and 2, God has saved me. Do you see that? Let us shout aloud to the, verse 1, to the rock of our salvation. He has saved me and my worship is an expression, an ongoing expression of both what he has done and what he continues to do in my life. And then verses 3 to 5, you see he's not only the saviour, but he's the sovereign, God of power and majesty. People have been... Uh, preoccupied with the stock market and all the issues. Some people have seen their savings drop like a lead balloon and anxious for the future, the pension and so on. What the psalmist is saying here, bring that into this. Look at it from this perspective, that your future is rock solid, a guarantee of heaven. <coughs> but have a little foretaste of it now. He said, I don't only want it then, I'd like a bit now, and that's not wrong. Come then, worship and bow down. The Lord is a great God, great above all the gods. Well, there are gods who demand our time and our emotion, for sure, but he's greater than that. He is our rock. And that gives us something profoundly satisfying and substantial in our worship. I think you'll agree that thanksgiving is always at the forefront of our worship, whether it's ancient or modern. And the real issue then isn't style or volume or particular liturgy or tradition. I'm not saying they're not important. They are, but they're not of supreme importance. The issue isn't style. The issue is this. But who is the worship for? Who is the music directed to? What does God think of our worship? As well as what do we think? And does God enjoy it? I hope we do too. Ask another question. Why worship at all? Why... Why come collectively to a place like this? I mean, you could, maybe you've seen songs of praise, sir. Speaking to somebody not so long ago whose son had tragically died, and he said to me, that's my church, points to the television. But I said to him, you know, you're not participating. That's good. Songs of praise is good. It's to get involved in worship. That we are fellow pilgrims on a journey and it's tough and there are dark periods and there are arid experiences. And you're not alone and we say to each other, come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our maker. Why worship at all? Well, the answer is because of who he is. He's great. He is great. 
And not only because of who he is, but because of what he's done. He's good. He is great. And he is good. You have that in verses 4 and 5. Now then, oftentimes, Psalm 95 in the sung worship stops at verse 7. And then some people will say verses 8 to them spoils it. I mean, look at, look at this. Uh, you harden your hearts at Maribel. It's the very text, actually, we're looking at this morning in Exodus 16. Forty years, I was angry with that generation. I said, these are people whose hearts go astray. That's a bit of a discord, isn't it? Is that going to spoil the psalm? And then, what an anticlimax. If you, were writing, if you were writing a song of worship, would you end like this? So I declare my anger. They will never enter my rest. They're lost. It's not a good psalm, is it? We like to live in a sort of society and culture and all the films and things. You know, we want to live happily ever after. But the worship that we engage in is with all the, the, the ravages of failure and fault and and disappointment and heartache. And it's real worship. It's real. Real people. Real setbacks. You wouldn't know oftentimes in worship that you are sitting next to somebody who is spiritually nowhere. Here we have a challenge, you see, in verses 8 to 11, to think about God's judgment. His past and his present, Meribah and Massa. It's resulted in a whole generation who are lost. Sometimes people, parents particularly, get quite frustrated. What's the church doing for the young people? Whole generation saw the greatest miracles and signs and wonders ever recorded in the Bible. Had no impact at all. There are people who believe. You, you put on signs and wonders, people will come. Well, let's have signs and wonders, but that isn't a guarantee that people's hearts are going to change and people are going to repent and turn to God. And here to think about God's judgment, past and present, and it results in a generation who doubted who rebelled and disobeyed against God. And the consequence, verse 11, So I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And you've probably got a footnote in your Bible like I do. Uh, Meribah means quarreling. Massa means testing. And in this cauldron of life of grumbling and quarreling and testing and trying, I hope comes an unfettered heart of pure worship. People who had forfeited the promised land, flowing with milk and honey and blessing, they never entered into their rest. It was an illusion. Great C.S. Lewis said this, what is sin? He asks in often the way he used to debate with academics and so on. And his answer was this. 
Sin is man saying to God throughout his life, leave me alone. That's that generation which we were reading this morning in Exodus 16. Leave me alone. And what is hell? C.S. Lewis says, hell is God saying, you have your wish. You don't enter my rest. You forfeit the blessing. Isn't that something? Let's get ready for worship. But let our worship be one that is in spirit and truth. And how extraordinary that Jesus would say that to a woman who had five broken marriages. So we mustn't moralize about it. A heart that is genuinely touched and stirred by the Spirit of God. Just to conclude, as we think about coming to communion, worship is very powerful. Powerful in this sense. Powerful to influence the mind to think. For some people in some churches, and I know it's easy to be critical, I don't want to be, but it almost seems to be that you, you've got to leave your brains outside. It's all emotion. But in verse 8, you see, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Hearing his voice with my mind to think, God has spoken to me. And my heart to respond. God is calling me and I'm not going to harden my heart. It is serious to have our spiritual arteries hardened. You don't know. You don't know. You have no warning. The heart suddenly stops. The suddenness of the stop with the cumulative effect through our lives unknown to us. A process of hardening. I feel like it's almost a sort of an attitude that seems to creep over us, which we need to repent of. So in verse 11, let's try to turn that around positively. Here we are, and God has spoken, and we are worshipping, and his word is open to us. He's given us a mind to think. He's given us a heart to respond, and he's given us a will to obey. So in verse 11, obey before it's too late. Come, come, says the covenant people. Come, says the priest at the liturgy. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's do that. Let's kneel before the Lord our King. How strange it should be that this psalm begins in praise and ends with a sense of pain. Begins with joy and ends with disappointment. And as if the Lord says to us by his spirit, don't you be like that. Come. Come to him. Get ready for worship. Allow your hearts to be softened again. Allow your attitude to change again. Allow your mind to think again. Allow your spirit to turn again. That's what we mean. Come. Come, let's do that.